these raids don't happen every day. In fact, like <laughs> lawyers typically can like negotiate away a raid. Mm-hmm. The fact this raid happened significantly ups the temperature on Ryan and suggests that either they feel he's genuinely not cooperating or that they want to scare him, frankly. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Friday, May 12th. Today, I'm joined by Teddy Schleifer, who has the latest on the frizzy-haired crypto titan, Sam Bankman-Fried, who, months after his arrest, is finally preparing his defense as he faces charges of fraud and conspiracy for the demise of his currency exchange, FTX. Teddy has the latest on his case, and who else from his crypto world might be pulled into the legal drama? And later, Alex Bigler returns to the pod to talk to Lauren Sherman about her passion for fashion and her path to buck. We'll discuss all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Friday, everybody. I'm going to let you in on a secret of the podcast trade. This podcast was recorded before actually today, Friday. When By the time you're hearing this, I'll be preparing for my rehearsal dinner. And on that note, I will be off for a few weeks, getting married, honeymooning. That's what you do. You will be in great hands here at Puck. I'm joined today by Teddy Schleifer, one of those people who likes to fill in for me. Uh, his voice is more richer and baritone, so um, I, I really like it when he fills in for me. Teddy, how you doing, buddy? Good. Um, now I'm very self-conscious about how I Ooh, sound. Ooh, you sound smooth. I'll go, I'll go even deeper. <laughs> I should hire you as a wedding singer. So, you know, as the spring flowers blossom this May, I'm reminded of the fact that Puck really grew as a bunch of stories started to blossom. We had the invasion of Ukraine, which Julia obviously dominated that storyline. The ouster of Jeff Zucker at CNN. Dylan killed that story. We had Will Smith slapping people. Matt Bellany killed that. One reason that Puck keeps growing and growing and growing is you're reporting Teddy on Sam Bankman-Fried. It's actually kind of been a while since the avalanche of Sam Bankman-Fried news cycles. But his defense team just filed a bunch of stuff in the courts. What was in that? Because I, I want an update on what's happening with this guy. Is he in jail? Does he have like an ankle monitor? Where did this big haired weirdo go? Sure. So the last time we talked about it, Peter, Sam Bankman Freed has been sort of waiting around to defend himself. Federal charges were first filed in mid December. And, you know, it's just sort of been a pile on for the last six months, right? From updated indictments from prosecutors, you know, every week, especially early on, there'd be some new negative story about Sam or or his cronies at his company that paints a more and more negative portrait. And the trial is going to begin in October, at least as of the current plan. But Mm -hmm. this past week, we got our first kind of look at Sam's defense. His counsel filed, uh, you know, a dozen or so motions to dismiss the case for various reasons, which is people do, lawyers do that. There's no, the, the meta strategy is not that interesting. But in the filings, we kind of got the first peek at what exactly Sam is going to say in that October trial, which will get tons of attention. And I think there are arguments that are both technical mm-hmm. and, and substantive. Some of the technical ones that I think uh, are, are going to be issues in the trial have to do with the terms of his extradition. 
So Sam, as people may remember, lived in the Bahamas, um, which is not a part of the United States. And Sam was extradited. He was arrested by Bahamian uh, court officials and was extradited, um, you know, knock on the door. The U.S. government helped arrange for his extradition after he spent a few days in a uh, kind of uh, legendary Bahama, Bahamanian uh, jail cell. And Sam is basically alleging that there was a bait and switch here, that he was arrested in the Bahamas and agreed to be extradited as part of a deal between uh, Sam's lawyers and the U.S. government. And that the charges basically, once he got back to the United States and stepped off the plane, that he was thrown in the kitchen sink against him to charges he didn't agree to be extradited to face. So that's hmm. the technical stuff. The substantive stuff has to do with sort of, uh, I think what you could argue is is a broader argument about the crypto economy. You know, uh, Sam's ar- lawyers argue that there was basically no fraud here, that the crypto economy turned and that all of these companies that were once hot uh, hmm. were suddenly pretty cold and that there was a sort of a what he calls a, a rush to judgment, you know, that this case came together very, very quickly. I mean, he was charged in December. The company blew up in November and that there's sort of been this pile on that has been happening over the last couple of months where prosecutors are, you know, overzealous. Um, they also argue that the debtors that are the people that are, you know, inherited the carcass that is FTX <laughs> um, have basically been like working in cahoots with the government that the FTX uh, new leadership and the government that they've been serving as a, as a public mouthpiece for prosecutors is what they say um, and making these disparaging remarks. So the substance of stuff is sort of this process argument that. You know, in, in the wake of the blow up of FTX, that prosecutors, debtors, the media were all working cahoots to kind of get Sam when the, the facts on the ground were more complicated. And obviously, you know, we're going to get into further details when the October trial comes around. But we, we got our first window into it. And I know for Sam, it's got to feel good, right? I mean, you've been pounded for six months and haven't really had a chance to say anything except in an occasional Substack post, which savvy readers will note, have sort of stopped coming. Um, as people may remember, Sam was posting on Substack uh, for a little mm-hmm. bit. But the the court papers speak louder than the Substack link. So here we go. Yeah, he probably misses calling you uh, in SF to just drive on down and spend a quiet little Friday night at his house with his big old guard dog. But, you know, he can't be sitting too happy. I mean, you have a piece up on Puck this week about Ryan Salem, who was an FTX executive, the lone Republican in that crew, <laughs> perhaps. Yeah. His house was raided by the feds, by the FBI on April 27th. I'm sure they got phones and other communications. Like, right. is, is everyone else associated with FTX, including his kind of sort of ex-girlfriend, Caroline Ellison? Are they all cooperating at this point? So Ryan is, I think, one of the big question marks going forward, and I think is going to be a big storyline over the summer. Ryan was the Republican face of the operation, so to speak. He surrounded himself with kind of uh, Republican political aides. Ryan was, you know, showing up before big prominent Republican super PACs. Everyone knew who he was. I had two conversations with Republicans today about Ryan. He has not pled guilty to anything nor has he been charged explicitly with anything. Mm. He's been sort of referenced in court filings. And at this point, that's unusual um, because 
he was a top executive. And it's not as if every top executive at FTX has been charged with something, but like there's sort of been this wink wink going on between Ryan's lawyers and federal prosecutors where he's named he's referenced in a, in uh kind of the campaign finance scheme that Sam Bankman Fried has been accused of of perpetrating, but he hasn't been charged with anything. There have been until this raid uh, two weeks ago, basically nothing had been written about him. And I know his lawyers have been trying really hard to keep Ryan mm-hmm. b- below the below the radar. But the fact that this raid happened in this you know suburban, leafy Maryland neighborhood that I visited last week, the fact that this raid happened suggests that they're not getting enough cooperation. Like the way these things typically work, you know, this is not like law and order. The, the way that witnesses are made to cooperate is through meetings in in offices right where prosecutors meet with lawyers there's phone calls these raids don't happen every day in fact like hmm. lawyers typically can like negotiate away a raid is that the same way they negotiate away like a perp walk or you know an arrest like typically defense counsel call u.s prosecutors often like defense counsel used to work with the u.s prosecutors and you make sure there's no raid oh you want some access to some, to some phones we can get you those phones. Mm-hmm. The fact this raid happened uh, significantly ups the temperature on Ryan and suggests that either they feel he's genuinely not cooperating or that they feel that like they really need him to like they want to scare him, frankly. Hmm. So, yeah, the, the other week, you know, Ryan and his girlfriend, who's a former congressional candidate, former Republican politician, their, their home was raided. And um, I think we're going to see some news over the next couple of weeks on maybe a new cooperating witness or maybe, you know, new charges. I mean, those are sort of the two options Mm -hmm. here. Hmm. Last thing, there was a class action filed a couple months ago at this point, trying to hold all these celebrities, Tom Brady, Larry David, Steph Curry, Shaq, for hyping FTX, for basically being like celebrity spokesman for (laughs) the exchange. Is that going anywhere? Does that have any merit in your eyes? I know you're not an attorney, but I don't know. It seems like being a paid spokesman doesn't really rope you into fraud and conspiracy. Right. I, I, I've loosely followed this um, primarily, Peter, because um, there have been some hilarious antics to try to serve all these celebrities with um, <laughs> yeah. with, with papers. Like, I've I feel like, those. you know, occasionally we'll see like Sha- like, like Shaquille O'Neal has like been avoiding uh, avoiding being served and like the people are trying to serve them electronically you can just like show up at like the TNT studio in Atlanta and like try to try to get these papers in front of them. But obviously <laughs> these celebrities are hard. Um, yes, look, there's this class action lawsuit is still going on. It has been hampered by by this. But, you know, I think it's a good reminder. There are actual victims here, right? Um, people who expect to get uh, mm-hmm. money back. And this is going to look, this is going to be years of litigation. We're only we're only six months in. We're, we're just getting started here. Peter, by the time by the time your honeymoon is over, I, I don't think we'll have any resolution. So don't don't worry about the FTX case while you're out. <laughs> Oh, that's really, I'm going to say that's your wedding gift to me, not to think about the FTX case. Hopefully by the time I get back, Steph Curry will have been bounced from the playoffs along with the rest of the Warriors and he'll have plenty of time on his hands to think about this class action. Peter, dirty secret, we're recording this even before game six, so. (laughs) Man, we're really pulling back the curtain here on how uh, the sausage is really made in media and what really happens at the intersection of Zoom, Teddy, the NBA, and FTX. I'm going to have a great vacation. Thanks so much. You bet. When we come back, Alex Bigler talks to Lauren Sherman about fashion.
Welcome back, everybody. This is Alex Bigler. It is an honor and privilege to not only be back on The Powers That Be, I got a lot of text messages from uh, loyal listeners asking where I've been, but also to be joined by the newest addition to the Puck family, Lauren Sherman. For those loyal listeners who remember last time I was on the podcast, it was basically me waxing poetic about how excited I was that Lauren was joining. And now Lauren is here, and I'm so excited to talk with her today. So Lauren, thanks for joining. Thanks for having me, Alex. I'm so happy to be here. Well, for those of you who have not yet read Line Sheet or are familiar with Lauren, Lauren covers fashion. And again, it's not necessarily florals for spring, groundbreaking fashion. It's more what are the movers and players in fashion and retail and how that affects the economy at whole. Lauren, that is my layman's way of describing what you do and what you cover. But do you want to give us a little bit of a descriptor? I think that's exactly right. I accidentally got a job at a business magazine when I was 23 years old and realized I had always wanted to be a fashion writer or a fashion journalist, cover the shows, that sort of thing. And quickly realized that the business side of the industry, which was getting much bigger in the mid 2000s when I started out and rapidly consolidating and all of that stuff that it was undercovered and really still is undercovered today. Like a lot of big newspapers and general interest publications don't have someone dedicated to covering these huge, huge companies. And so I thought, oh, this is a good way to keep myself employed. Just (laughs) write about the business side of the industry. And what I think I do that's a bit unique is I'm also a big consumer of fashion, probably Mm -hmm too much. The ratio <laughs> to income is not great, but um, but I am a big consumer of it and have been since I was very, very, very young. And what I try to do is kind of take anecdotes and examples from my own life and the people around me and things I observe on the street and bring them into how is the business reflected in that way. So it's a mix of cultural criticism and business analysis that I feel like I can only do because no one else has bothered to devote their entire life to it for whatever reason. Well, I will be um, very honest to our listeners that as much as I reach out to Lauren to talk about marketing and puck and subscriber events and things that we're going to be doing from a business perspective, she also gets her fair share of questions from me of what do you think of these shoes? And if I were choosing between these two bags, which one would you do? So, you know, really right into the fire with me from the minute that you joined. Happy to help. Happy to help. And I also have a sample sale listing for you that I'm going to send through for this weekend. That's you're going to want it. I'm not going to say the name of the brand because I don't want I want to keep it private, but it's a good one. (laughs) Yeah. Lauren tried to have a call with me earlier this week and I was fighting my way through a rack at a sample sale. So she learned a lot about me at uh, at a very quickly in her tenure at Puck. So in covering fashion, has anything really surprised you that you didn't expect when you started covering this beat? Whether it's, you know, are people forthcoming or not forthcoming? Are people excited to talk about the business side of their work or not? What do consumers think? That's a broad question, but. Uh, So I've been doing this in earnest since January, 2006. So Mm -hmm. that's over 15 years. So that was a really interesting time to start covering this because it was 
right before the big crash of what, 2007, 2008, and the real estate market Mm -hmm. was booming and consumers were spending like crazy. The Chinese market for luxury goods was exploding. And it was just a really big, interesting time. But the thing that I think I learned during the crash and then subsequently over the next 15 years or so was how hard it is to make money off of selling clothes Mm -hmm. at every price point. So at the lower end, you need insane scale because the margins, you know, margins on clothing in the like 40s and 50s, talking 40, 50, 60, 70 percent. Mm-hmm. Healthy. Yeah, healthy. At the high end now for handbags and leather goods and things like that, it's still 60 or 70 percent. And that's why these luxury companies are doing so well. Their profits are huge. But when you're selling clothing, it's really hard to make a good profit, even at the Mm -hmm. high end, because everything gets discounted. And so it can be a very, very lucrative business. Look at something like a Michael Kors that has made, you know, he became a billionaire when he IPO'd in 2011. And his business is really, he makes high-end clothes. He makes, you know, $4,000 skirts, that sort of thing. But the real Mm -hmm. business is in the $250 handbags that you buy at Macy's. And he's made an incredible business out of that. But even a business like that, like the margins are so, so slim. It's very easy to have a year or a quarter where you don't make a profit. And so Mm -hmm. that to me is the craziest thing of how hard it is to actually make money and also how hidden that is. So you can have a brand that is globally known that makes $20 million a year in sales. Mm -hmm. And you can have a brand that is not globally known, but has a very particular audience that makes $250 million a year in sales. Mm -hmm. And so the brand perception versus what the actual business is, is very skewed in fashion. And that's been really fun for me to cover because as the business has become more of a business and less Mm -hmm. of instead of a sort of cottage industry of family run businesses and really corporatized. It's been fun to see that and see what is big and what isn't. If you think about something like LVMH, which I I think I've talked about on every single one of these podcasts (laughs) that I've done, but it's the biggest company in my industry and very much undercovered, but they own 75 different companies within their business. And a lot of them, I mean, they have fragrance, they have champagne, they have hotels, et cetera, et cetera. But when you look at the brands that they own, Louis Vuitton is the biggest one and it's the most ubiquitous, but then they have, they're they're launching Phoebe Philo's new brand. That has the potential to have a lot of cultural impact in a way that Louis Vuitton wouldn't. Their impact is different and broader. So it's interesting to see a tiny brand can have a big impact and also it's just the the business versus the value that consumers see in that business is do not often equate. And that's been the thing that I can write about forever. That's why I've been doing this for so long. And that's I think why we wanted you so desperately at Puck, because, you know, I think that what you're pointing out is everything at Puck is the intersection of business and culture and fashion for me is the, you know, quote unquote personification of exactly that. So I think it's great. I'm having such a great time. Well, pivoting to Puck a little bit, because, you know, something that I talked about on the pod last time I was on is how when we first announced that we were starting a fashion vertical, I think that there were some skeptics of people thinking that fashion wasn't important or interesting enough to cover. Um, And I think everything that we do with Puck is 
people come in for a particular interest area, but then I think we're doing a pretty good job of introducing them to other areas that they might not be initially interested in. I think that's happening with LineSheet. I've been getting a lot of emails from people saying, I didn't think I would care about it, but it's A, written in such a compelling way, and B, makes such a case for why it's important in business and Wall Street to understand how these dynamics work, that it's that it's really pulling me in and a great addition. And so I'm going to kind of turn that question on you of when you're thinking about the roster of Puck writers that we have, who are some other journalists that you really like to read here to kind of get it, whether it impacts your work in any way or how you think about your work or just an area you didn't think you had a lot of interest in, but turns out now you're fascinated by it. Yeah, Alex, I think you know that I've been, I was a very early Puck subscriber. I don't know who yeah. sent it to me, but someone sent me what I'm hearing, Matt Bellany's newsletter. Yeah. And I, I was reading it in beta and I moved to LA a couple of years ago. And that to me is the clearest intersection. I have already written a bit about the business of celebrity styling, but there is a lot happening in Hollywood and entertainment that connects to fashion and particularly luxury brands because they fund so much of, you know, talent's lives these days. You don't make so much money off of a movie, but you can make a ton of money off an, of an ad campaign. So I've always covered it mm -hmm. lightly, but I, I felt like, especially moving out here, that there was just so much more to mine. So I started reading Matt's newsletter became really, really obsessed with it. Mm -hmm. So that was sort of my entry point into Puck. And and I started reading Matt's, but quickly also started reading Bill's column mm -hmm. because a lot of what he writes about actually overlaps with what I write about and, you know, just wealth and finance. And he just had this big piece on Lazard, which is a bank that deals with a lot of, they were, Bernard Arnault, the, the chairman and CEO of LVMH was a client of theirs in the 80s when he mm. started building his empire. So it's oh, it's of interest. That. that, for example, is of interest to me. And I knew Teddy before I joined. And so I was following what he was doing. Anything to do with power, I, I want to know about. But I would say that, and all of them, I mean, Dylan's coverage of media, I'm obsessed with I'm a media junkie like most journalists and want to figure out how to make money off of traditional journalism. And so I do not watch cable news. So kind of following all that, I have little understanding of who these people are other than what I read, but it's been interesting. But I would say the thing that I definitely have not been engaged with is the sort of political coverage that Julia and Tina and Tara are doing. And that has been really interesting to me because obviously that world has so many crazy characters and yep. their reporting is just exceptional and and so fascinating. And the thing about Puck, I, everyone is great. I, I'm not just saying that, it, but it's written in a way that it hooks you in, even if you don't know much about it. Like I don't know about all these like different Congress people and senators, except for what I hear on NPR in the morning. And that's very broad. And the fact that I'm enjoying this coverage, it's its super fun. And I had lunch with a fashion designer last week in New York, and he was like, oh, I watch, he's obsessed with Puck because he watches CNBC. And I, all the Puck reporters, except for me, are on it constantly. And he was like, I never had a subscription, but now I got one because of you. And that part of it is is really fun too. It's fun to 
be at a place I've covered the industry from the inside for a long time. And it's fun to be at a, at a place where people are writing up about a lot of different things to see how they all intersect. I think that's great. Well, Lauren, thank you so much for talking with me today. I hope we get to do this again soon. I am panicking about what I'm going to wear to um, an upcoming event. So you should expect some um, photo options to come your way soon. Can't wait. And I appreciate it. And we'll talk soon. Thanks, Alex. This was so fun. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Dylan Byers. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and produced by Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck, and Bob Tabador. <laughs>